Al Jazeera podcast. The UN Security Council passes a motion on the Gaza war. That's come after two months of Israeli attacks that have killed 20,000 Palestinians. The resolution, weakened by US pressure, calls for more aid, but not for Israel to stop its bombardment. Will it have any impact? I'm Darin Abogeda. You're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Joining us is Scott Lucas from Birmingham in the UK. He's a professor of US and international relations at University College Dublin, and also the founder and editor of the online news site EA Worldview. From Moscow is Dmitry Babich, who's a political analyst at uh, Inomsai Internet Media Project. And from Islamabad, Maliha Lodi, a former Pakistan permanent representative and ambassador to the United Nations. Thank you all for joining us. Um, Maliha, I'll come to you first. If we look at this latest resolution, it opposes a demand for the suspension of hostilities, but calls for the creation of conditions to allow a sustainable ceasefire. How does that work? Well, I mean, I think the question to be asked is, uh, 10 weeks into a brutal war with over 20,000 civilian Palestinians dead, is this all the Security Council could do? I think it's a failure of its duty and its responsibility because, after all, this is the world body uh, that has primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security. So this resolution is so watered down. Uh, it doesn't even, I mean, let alone a ceasefire. I mean, the yeah, I mean, that's an important today- point you raise, and we're definitely going to be talking about that in a moment. But first, I'd just like to um, zero in on some of the language that was used. So when the resolution calls for urgent steps to establish conditions for a sustainable ceasefire, I mean, how open to interpretation is this, in your opinion? You uh, were a, uh, a permanent representative to the United Nations, because if you look at Israel, it believes those steps... Uh, would involve the complete destruction of Hamas, for example. So, so the language used, how would you describe it? I think it's meaningless. It means absolutely nothing. It will do nothing to change the situation on the ground because we know that several days of negotiations where the U.S. threatened to use the veto unless it got the language that it wanted, and in the end it did get the language it wanted because the language originally was that there should be a cessation of uh, hostilities. And then the word was changed to suspension of hostilities. And then we ended up with that being dropped and only the call for creating the conditions, whatever that means. Uh, It's up to anybody to interpret that. So frankly, I think US delay uh, and the display of duplicity led to an outcome that is going to change absolutely nothing. While people continue to be killed, and devastation continues. You know, the UN Secretary General, as your report itself indicated, has expressed his own um, disappointment and skepticism and basically said, uh, this is not going to help anything unless there is a ceasefire. How can you get humanitarian assistance in? It's not possible. Let's bring in Dimitri, because we had reaction from the Russian ambassador uh, saying um, that the US had rendered this resolution Toothless. Is that then how we explain the Russian abstention to uh, this vote? No, I think uh, Russia and the United States abstained for absolutely different reasons. You know, the 
the Russian representative saw the, the Russian side thinks that the, the resolution doesn't go far enough in, in forcing Israel to stop the bombardment. And the United States wants to uh, water down the resolution. Uh, let me remind you that for many years, the United States criticized the United Nations. And uh, the United States even justified uh, its actions uh, by passing the United Nations, such as the invasion of Iraq, such as the invasion of Yugoslavia. Uh, they explained it by the UN being toothless, by the UN passing uh, watered-down resolutions. Well, what can be more watered-down than a resolution calling for the creation of conditions for, um, what, what do they say, uh, for um, sustainable ceasefire. To allow I mean, for a sustainable uh, ceasefire, dying. that's a language that it's was It's time to stop shooting. Exactly. This is a very, very watered-down language. Uh, people are dying, you know. Uh, the shooting should be stopped immediately so that humanitarian aid could come. Uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations has been very open about it. And still, we have these uh, empty words. And we have the United Nations, uh, we have the United States first blocking the Security Council resolution. Then we have the General Assembly, where uh, the United States votes against uh, our resolution, supported by just a handful of its proxies, you know, countries Okay, Dimitri, like let me just ask you this. Let me just ask Nauru, you this. Uh, yeah. Because the, uh, we also heard, we got reaction from, the Isra from Israel's permanent representative who called the resolution's focus on aid mechanisms unnecessary and disconnected from reality. But we also know that that resolution has changed over uh, the past few days until uh, delegates reached the text that they did on Friday. Would those changes have been uh, done not, maybe not so much in conjunction with the Israelis, but, but how much pressure would the Israelis been putting on the Americans, for example, to water down the text? I think uh, Israelis do not need to pressure the Americans. Americans were more than willing to water down this resolution. There are two main points. Uh, should the uh, bombardment be stopped immediately? And who controls the process of uh, distribute, distributing aid. Uh, Israel uh, wants to control that process. Obviously, this is not acceptable uh, for Palestinians and for many countries that want to provide aid. So these are two stumbling blocks, and, uh, and the United States keeps using them in order to block uh, any progress on these resolutions. Right. But we also know on that last point you made that the U.S. also insisted on removing the clause that gives the U.N. exclusive control of humanitarian delivery. So we understand that Israel yes. still is going to that's manage those. Important. Scott Lucas, over to Israel you. What does the that, U.S. get is. out of abstaining from this resolution after a number of days going back and forth? And then this resolution is put out. And as we're hearing from our panelists, it's almost meaningless. What does the U.S. get out of this? Well, I think, first of all, it's important to note it's not just the U.S. that's playing politics here. Uh, we should note that the Kremlin is using this as a process to try to get off the hook over its repeated vetoes when it enabled and indeed joined the Assad regime in the mass killing of hundreds of thousands of people in Syria. And, of course, it's paralyzing the Security Council over the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine. But in this case of the United States, what you had, and you've described this, there are three key points here. First of all, removing any reference to a suspension of hostilities, let alone a cessation of hostilities. 
Secondly, removing the phrase giving the UN control over aid, which effectively gives the Israelis a veto over those supplies. And thirdly, removing any reference to uh, violations of international humanitarian law by all sides. What the United States is continuing to do is to try to sort of maintain this idea that it has leverage with the Israelis, that somehow it can call on the Israelis to limit the operations that are killing civilians. I think, quite frankly, that ship has sailed. The U.S. does not have leverage with the Israelis unless it was to restrict military aid. Uh, but in fact, of course, the United States has increased military aid to Israel since October 7th, including more than 15,000 bombs, more than 10,000 of which are unguided, dumb bombs. And the broader answer to this is, is that the United States, since the 1967 war, has treated Israel as one of its three strategic allies in the Middle East. One of those three allies, Iran, is gone. Uh, Saudi Arabia is not an assured ally at this point. And so U.S. institutions are still bedded in with the Israelis. And even behind closed doors, as they try to tell the Israelis, please stop, please limit this. The okay, Israeli so hang cabinet, on a second, Scott. Is the U.S. here much. trying to send a message then to, uh, to the world, in fact, that it's still strong in the Middle East? Well, the, the U.S. is actually playing both sides here, or trying to play both sides here. Now, you're seeing the side here where you've got the Biden administration or those officials in the Biden administration who publicly will not criticize Israel over its military operations. The other side of this has been, for example, Vice President Kamala Harris, who has publicly called for the protection of civilians. The problem here is, is that a both sides message by the Biden administration means almost nothing, much as Ambassador Lodi mentioned the fact that this ultimate UN resolution means nothing. Until you have a firm line from the Biden administration, enough is enough, backed up by action, which means the restriction of military aid to the Israelis, Tel Aviv's going to use that wiggle room. You know, whatever's being told them by behind closed, closed doors by Anthony Blinken, for example, publicly, they'll continue to expand this offensive, as we've seen in the last 48 hours. Uh, Maliha, this was a UAE-led resolution from the get-go, in which the U.S. then managed to water down. Why would the UAE allow this? I think the UAE was desperate to get any resolution in before its term ended on the Security Council. But I think in doing that, it exposed itself to the kind of uh, negotiations in which uh, the United States basically got its way. Uh, and it got its way uh, to Israel's benefit. Uh, as you said earlier, uh, Israel retains uh, its control over the delivery of aid. And of course, there's no ceasefire. So I think, you know, we have to look at the big picture. The big picture is that the world is standing on one side, as expressed in two General Assembly resolutions, global opinion. And then we have the United States and Israel standing on one side. And yet, the Security Council is, is unable to act in any meaningful way to stop the war. Because so, I agree with Dimitri, unless unless there is an end to the bloodshed, unless there is an end to the war, uh, it is meaningless to talk about getting humanitarian assistance in. I mean, you're killing people, and then you're saying, uh, we'd like to help uh, whoever is surviving. So, uh, Dimitri, um, how will the Security Council respond if Israel doesn't comply with this? 
Well, uh, it is difficult to predict uh, what will happen next, uh, but uh, I see a very dangerous tendency, and I think Lucas uh, uh, noted it very well. Uh, the Western side is trying to, uh, I would call it, expand the base of the conflict. They keep mentioning Russia-Ukrainian conflict. Uh, they keep comparing Russia to Hamas, which is absurd to my mind, but they keep doing it. You know, the United States president is doing it. Several foreign ministers in the EU are doing that. So uh, I think we should all concentrate now on seizing hostilities. This is the most important thing. If the Security Council can concentrate on that, uh, I'm sure uh, there can be an outcome. Uh, but. Uh, I don't think anyone can tell you what will happen in the next seven or eight days, uh, because uh, it's so unpredictable. The, the policies of the Western countries have become unpredictable. They keep finding enemies uh, for themselves. And uh, uh, also, of course, the world is watching. Uh, who are the countries that abstained or voted against the uh, General Assembly resolution on seizing hostilities in, uh, in, in Gaza? in Palestine. You know, Ukraine abstained, the UK abstained, the US allies and the NATO members, they were the countries that abstained. Right. So, Scott, I mean, it just sounds like I'm struggling to, to find um, the point of such resolutions then. Uh, am I correct in saying that? And, and how far away is the Council from actually making a real difference on the ground when it comes to the war on Gaza? There is a point, but it's a symbolic. In terms of the practical, the military, the economic, the reality is, and we've known this for decades, is that the Security Council is held hostage to the five powers who have veto over it. So the Security Council was held hostage and could not do anything over the mass killing in Syria or over Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine because of the Russian veto. Here, the Security Council is being held hostage because of the American veto. That said, I do think it is important that you have a vast majority of the Security Council, in this case, 13 of 15 members yesterday, with only Russia and the U.S. abstaining, who have signaled the fact that they want something to be done. I think it's important that the General Assembly, by an overwhelming margin, 153 of 193 states, nations calling for that ceasefire, it does highlight the isolation of the Israelis. It does highlight that if the Israeli war cabinet cannot, quote, destroy Hamas soon, as its own foreign minister said, we risk diplomatic defeat. So yes, this process is not satisfying. This process will not help out Gaza civilians. So, Scott, what does this term, tell you then? What does this tell you term? about the U.S. timetable when it comes to this war? Because what we've heard from the Israeli side is that they need a few months. The Americans have reportedly said you have a few weeks, and now we have this resolution that doesn't call for a ceasefire. I, I, I go back to a point I made earlier that American officials have told the Israelis behind closed doors, they've leaked it to the media, that they wanted these operations wrapped up by December 31st. I think it's evident that barring a very quick Israeli, quote, victory in southern Gaza, these operations will not wrap up. So just as I said that the Security Council is held hostage by the U.S. and Russia, the Americans are held hostage by the Israeli war cabinet 
unless, and I repeat, unless the Americans take a meaningful step, which is either to support a resolution which has enforcement powers to bring aid into Gaza, or unless the Americans restrict military aid to the Israelis. If they do neither of those, the Israeli war cabinet, they can proceed knowing they're not going to suffer a punishment, no matter how many civilians and perhaps Hamas fighters die in Gaza for weeks or even months. Maliha, does this resolution have enforcement powers? How can it actually be enforced? Because, I mean, we've spoken also to a lot of humanitarian groups here on Al Jazeera since that resolution was passed who, who said this is likely to make no difference to them. Look, it's very weak. I mean, if you listen to what many heads of uh, uh, non-governmental organizations are saying, humanitarian organizations are saying, they're all saying the same thing, which is it's going to make precious little difference uh, on the ground. And I think what it does is these sorts of uh, actions, what they do is they undermine the legitimacy of the Security Council. And that in turn brings into question the very credibility of the United Nations. The United Nations is then seen as you know, losing any relevance uh, in a crisis that's gone on for over 10 weeks and where the situation gets more and more grave as the days go by. So I think uh, this kind of resolution is of no help to anybody. But clearly, it's a response to gr growing pressure. Uh, there is pressure exerted by the two G resolutions, uh, which clearly called for something to be done, and that something was a ceasefire. But that didn't happen. So in in you know instead of that, it's almost like substituting what really needed to be done with something which is so weak and as I said before, uh, so meaningless. But in a way, responding to pressure also uh, from demonstrations that have taken place and are continuing to take place across the world, uh, public demonstrations calling for action to stop the uh, genocide, to stop the bloodshed. So you know these kinds of resolutions then are used uh, really, uh, frankly, in my opinion, as a smokescreen, uh, because nothing really changes. Right. Uh, Dimitri, what does this mean for the Secretary General himself, if anything at all? Does it uh, empower him to speak out more? Uh, because we saw him a few weeks ago invoke Article 99, which calls for a cessation of hostilities. And at the time, he said that he hoped that his move would put more pressure on the Council. Do you think it has pressured the Council in any way at all? What does the Secretary General do next? Well, unfortunately, the power of the Secretary General uh, of the United Nations has been decreasing in the last, uh, I would say, at least 20 years since the invasion of Iraq. Uh, we saw that the Security Council, uh, you know, uh, the, the veto uh, rule, uh, which Scott uh, uh, criticized, uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think it's going to be removed because it saved the world from a nuclear war several times after 1945. You know, the veto power were given to the nuclear powers. So I don't think humanity will uh, say goodbye to the system that somehow protected us for so many years. But uh, the power of the uh, uh, general secretary has been decreasing. Uh, we, we saw how the UN has been unable to prevent huge invasions, such as the invasion of Iraq, such as the covered, covert invasion of Syria by uh, the countries that were not invited there by anyone. 
not by the Syrian government, not by the uh, United Nations. So I don't expect uh, Antonio Guterres uh, to be very effective. I, 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 frankly, I would not like to be in his shoes right now. He has been powerless to stop uh, the repression of uh, Russian-speaking population of Ukraine for eight years. I mean, for eight years before uh, Putin started this so-called military operation, Donetsk and Lugansk were bombarded by the Ukrainian troops, and uh, the United Nations did nothing. Scott, go ahead. So, uh, so I, I'll just come back to, you know, the fundamental points to stick with facts rather than putting out propaganda here. And the fundamental fact here is, is that I think, as Ambassador Lodi has pointed out, that that as as as, as unfortunately as Ambassador Lodi has pointed out, that as long as you have the veto power, which is placed in there by the Security Council, uh, it is going to be a body which is really not going to intervene to affect in a number of cases. And this goes all the way back to the 1950s. Um, you know, the last time the UN Security Council really acted effectively in an issue regarding one of the great powers was when it decided to intervene in the Korean War. And that's because the Soviet Union boycotted the Security Council, a mistake they vowed never to make again. So again, when it comes to the case of Iran, uh, as Dimitri pointed out in 2003, yes, the Security Council ultimately was powerless to present a disastrous invasion. When it comes to China repressing its own population, uh, the Security Council is powerless to act because there'll be a Chinese veto. And when the Kremlin creates the propaganda lines to say, oh, it's okay for the Assad regime to kill Syrian civilians because supposedly it's all the fault of the Western powers, they can paralyze the Security Council. When the Russians, when the Kremlin invades Ukraine, invades Ukraine, doesn't defend Ukraine, invades Ukraine, then they can say, oh, it's the Western powers, it's the NATO, it's their fault. We're going to cast our veto in the Security Council and then proceed to justify their own war crimes, which ensue. If you want to deal with this, you fundamentally have to deal with that question of veto power, where right. the five powers do not hold the, the world hostage. And that means giving more power to the General Assembly or having an expanded Security Council where the veto power does not paralyze it. Yeah, where, of course, we know resolutions there are, in fact, non-binding. But we'll have to leave it there on that note. Thank you so much for joining us, Scott Lucas, Dimitri Babic, Amali Lodi. We appreciate your time. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Umkulsum Sharif, Laurent Peter, and Peter Taylor. Studio sound was by Yasser Rahmani. The program was edited by Manish Matai, David Enders, Negan Ulay, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Sunday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we're looking at some of the stories that define 2023. From drones in Ukraine to the rise of chat GPT. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.